0: Hello, and welcome to FabGab. This is the podcast for the International Journal of Feminist Approaches to Bioethics, brought to you by Fab Network. My name is Catherine McKay, and today I'm joined by Kate Mason from Brown University to discuss her paper, Postpartum Maternal Tethering, A Bioethics of Early Motherhood. Hi, Kate.
1: Hi, how are you?
0: I'm good. How are you doing?
1: (laughs) Fine, thanks.
0: Good. Thanks for joining me.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Oh, it's a pleasure. I think the first question to ask you, Kate, is if you could give a kind of overview of your paper and your argument about postpartum maternal tethering.
1: Sure. So the, the basic premise of the paper is that the maternal-fetal conflict that bioethicists have written about for decades does not end at birth. So I argue that it obviously it morphs into a different form, and I'm not suggesting in any way that the fetus and the baby are the same thing. But what I am suggesting is that while the ethical status of the fetus transforms at birth, the ethical status of the mother's relationship with that fetus slash baby does not change nearly as much as as we make it out to be due to what I refer to as the postpartum internal tether. Um, And I talk about that basically as a continuation of both the biological and social connection that ties a woman uh, to her baby starting in pregnancy, tying a pregnant body to a baby that puts ethical constraints on her ability to act um, in her own interests and participate in in her social context the way that she might want to. Um, And so while um, this tie again lengthens and stretches, it doesn't break when the fetus exits the body um, because of the way in which babies are dependent, totally dependent on a caregiver and that caregiver in almost every context in the world tends to be assumed to be the mother. Um, And there are sort of biological connections, but also very, very strong social connections. And so I give examples of how this works. Um, And I suggest at the end that it's actually mothers who due to illness, and I take the example of mental illness, which is the most common complication of childbirth worldwide, um, women who because of illness are not able to act in that function, in that role, That they, even though that, you know, there's a lot of suffering there that it sort of ends up opening up this space for thinking about how to denaturalize and kind of desanctify the mother baby relationship specifically in ways that I think could be productive for families um, more broadly. So that's sort of the two minute overview.
0: Yeah, that's really helpful. And I think so this paper is based on some research that you did in the field. Is that right?
1: Yeah, so I'm an anthropologist and so uh, our way of of gathering data is to do ethnographic fieldwork, which involves a lot of participation observation, we call participant observation, um, in things that the communities and groups of people we're studying are doing. So I did this kind of work in both the US and in China Um, working with mothers, with clinicians, with researchers who are working on postpartum uh, mental health issues, um, and also conducted a lot of interviews uh, with clinicians as well as with moms, with other members of the
0: family, um,
1: and uh, with other folks who are just working in this area.
0: I was wondering how you chose your locations. I guess choosing the U.S. is kind of an obvious one because that's where you live and work, but yeah. How did you choose Uh, China?
1: Yeah, so I've been doing research in China for about two decades now. Um, So my previous work, which has sort of come back to the surface with uh, COVID was focused on infectious disease and Mm -hmm. infectious disease control. Um, And so I wrote a book about the SARS epidemic in China in 2003, which obviously has become rather relevant these days. (laughs) So I've gotten pulled back into that world. So it's nice to take this time to talk about my my work on the postpartum period. Um, So it was a natural fit. And I went specifically to uh, an area of southwestern China in Sichuan province, a city called Luzhou, um, which is sort of a it's referred to as a third tier city in China, a third tier city in China being a city that has about a million people. Oh, wow. <laughs> so the scale is is very different there um, than in you know Australia, for example. Um, but it, in that in that city, people continue to live in kind of relatively traditional family structures. so usually, Um, the grandmother will be very involved in taking care of a baby and will live with the family and care for the mother and baby. And so I was interested in that contrast between that family structure and how it usually turns out in the States. Um, And Mm -hmm. so that was the source of the desire to compare. And what I found was that it is very different, but interestingly, um, the outcome is really similar. So, um, so, At least middle class mothers, because in both locations I was working with mostly with middle class mothers who are partnered in some way and, you know, have sort of this traditional family structure in the context where they are, in both cases, um, they were struggling with similar things, but the the specifics were different. So Mm -hmm. in the States, a lot of it had to do with not having enough support or being alone. And in China, it often had to do with too much support. So the grandmother being very (laughs) intrusive, often traditionally it's the mother-in-law and that relationship can be very fraught. And so there were kind of different triggering factors to the mental health issues that women were having, but the way in which it presented and was experienced was actually sort of surprisingly similar.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was interesting. I wonder if you could, um, for the listener, sort of take us through what the main points of argument are in your paper?
1: Sure, so um, so the first point is I just try to establish that there is an ethical issue here um, mm-hmm. that are, is related to, but somewhat different from the, the ethical challenges of the prenatal period. Um, and I spent some time establishing this because there's very, very little written in the bioethics literature about the postpartum period. And there's so much about pregnancy and I just felt like this is a really um neglected area of thought and research um and so I try to establish that this is an important ethical question and I describe uh you know this tether that I was talking about earlier that I see as as happening and kind of talk about both the biological and social nature of that tether so um, you know certainly, biologically, for mothers who are breastfeeding in particular, but really all mothers when they 've just given birth and I am talking about birth mothers in the paper, so I want to clarify it 's all cisgender women who gave birth to their babies that they 're caring for, so obviously, there might be some different kinds of issues for other other folks who are mothering um, but for these for these people who have given birth um, there 's obviously this biological connection, so there 's the breastfeeding if you're breastfeeding, but also Hormonal changes that occur right after um, right after you give birth that are affected by holding the baby on, on your skin, for example, um, that causes oxytocin to rise. So there, there are various physical connections, but you know, really most importantly, there's this um, social concept that women who have just given birth are naturally the best caregivers for their newborn babies, and that they naturally should want to. Um, care for that baby, to the exclusion of absolutely everything else. And mm-hmm. that, and there's a degree to which this holds on, you know, long after the newborn period, but I argue that there's a, there's a special nature to this assumption in the newborn period, where if a woman, for example, does not want to be caring for her weak old baby, we think there's something very terribly wrong with her, right? Um, and that's, that's pathologized and stigmatized so much that, um, as I put it in the article, it's it's thought about as being unthinkable. Like what kind of mother would not not love and want to care for all the time her baby who just came out of her body, right? So there's a certain mm-hmm. particular kind of uh, stigma attached to mothers who don't behave as we expect them to really early on. And then later it becomes sort of more acceptable to maybe Maybe you don't want to spend all day with your baby, and you want to go back to work, and that's okay. But that's later. So it's early on that's really not seen as as a possibility for something you would want. Um, and if if a mother does not interact with the baby in the way that you that they are expected to, or does not display this instinctual maternal know-how, or does not bond with them in a way that um, that that they are expected to socially, then that's, that's very much pathologized. Um, and so I argue that, um, that pathologization, but I mean, it, there's a vicious cycle there because um, women who are, for example, if they're feeling depressed, um, they often have trouble bonding with the baby in the expected ways, they might not want to, they might not feel capable of doing certain care um, for the baby. And even if there's somebody else, like a father or a grandmother or somebody else who is more than willing to step up, it's still seen as this really big problem that needs to be solved. Um, and then the woman feels so terrible about this that that tends to make the depression worse and it becomes this vicious cycle. So that's, that's one piece of it. And then I get into talking about um, relational autonomy and dependencies, so I talk a lot about Eva Kiffey's work, I hope mm-hmm. I'm pronouncing her last name right, I've never been mm-hmm. sure. Um, <laughs> And her work on dependency as being a sort of important part of relational autonomy. And relational autonomy, as I talk about it, meaning basically that, um, you know, no one acts entirely by or for themselves, right? So self-determination and choice only ever happens in the context of relationships. And so I very much subscribe to that idea and to Eva Kite's idea about dependency that we all at some point in life are dependent on others, and most of us have someone dependent on us at some point, and that's a normal part of the way we exist that should be celebrated and not stigmatized. Um, So I have no, I take no issue with that argument, but the the problem that as I see it is that very often um, we act as if babies are uh, uniquely vulnerable to its mother. And I quote Robert Gooden here. So um, the idea that they're dependent is fine, but the idea that they're uniquely vulnerable to their biological mother is after birth, so that they have to be dependent on her specifically is kind of where I see the, the problem. And so Kitay argues that, you know, we can deal with this problem by providing more support for mothers, right? So the problem is more support. Um, And if you can support them, then they're not feeling overwhelmed and they can take care of their baby um, without bad effects on themselves. But I argue that that still still assumes that mothers have special obligations to their babies that other people do not. For example, a father or another family member. Um, And and so that restricts their autonomy in ways that is really particular to, to this kind of position. Um, and I think that that's problematic. So where I kind of come with this is that maybe it's okay if sometimes the mother is not necessarily the one taking care even of a newborn. Um, maybe we need to depathologize that experience, and maybe, you know, if you're exhausted and you're not sleeping and you're, body is battered and you're scared and you don't know what you're doing and you're depressed, (laughs) maybe you're not the best person to be caring for your baby at that time. And maybe that's okay. (laughs) Maybe we shouldn't like think that's an emergency. Maybe, you know, we should encourage others to feel as much responsibility for taking care of that baby who does need round-the-clock care. And, you know, I'm not quarreling with the fact that babies need an adult to take care of them at all times. It just shouldn't have to always be the mother. So that's kind of where I... I come
0: to. And I had a question about the um, baby friendly requirements. So because I thought this was so interesting to read about, you know, to your point that brand new mothers who've just given birth are exhausted and their bodies have been battered and whatever. They're tired, of course, and in pain. Um, And so there was, you provide um, some of the conditions that a baby-friendly designation would require. So I guess if a hospital wants to have baby-friendly designation, um, it's actually, it struck me that that the requirements are baby-friendly, but mother-unfriendly, like yeah. have the baby in the room at all times, offer no alternatives except for breastfeeding unless it's proactively demanded. Um, that sounded like maybe that is really good for the baby to have the adult there all the time, but maybe not great for the new mothers at all.
1: Yeah, I, I think you've hit the nail on the head. And actually, interestingly, um, some advocates for, for women struggling with postpartum mental health challenges are trying to push for mom-friendly hospitals for exactly mm-hmm. that reason, right? Because it's, it's so oriented around the baby. And this is really what I take the most issue with in my article, and I feel really strongly about this. <laughs> that, that when a mother is just given birth, she suddenly doesn't matter. Right. Like Mm -hmm. her needs or desires are completely inconsequential because it's all about the baby. Um, And again, that changes over time. But at the beginning, you know, nobody cares about what's going on with the mother. You want her to recover and everything. But it's it's all about optimizing around the baby and there to even suggest that, well, maybe we we might be willing to make some compromises on what is absolutely 100 percent best for the baby. Um, to help the mother, that's like not something anyone's willing to entertain. You can only really make that argument if you can show that the baby is the same either way. Like if there's any possible negative side to the baby, even if it's minor, um, it's like it, you can't even suggest it because it's, it's so taboo to think about. Maybe the baby might be at 95% instead of 100% optimization for what's good for them so that you can help the, <laughs> the mother, right? Um, and that's the part I think is, is really just
0: troubling to mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting how it, I guess this is, the, this is really the other point that you're making, that this tether um, exists still between the mother and the baby, but between the baby and other parent and grandparents and siblings. And so it kind of fails to see the baby in the family group. It just sort of yeah. selects the baby out and kind of isolates them and says like sort of what's best here instead of what's best for the whole family because surely the mother's recovery and thriving is really crucial to the whole group as exactly. well.
1: Yeah, I mean, and and a lot of the treatment for postpartum um, mental illness is revolves around the mother-baby dyad. So Australia has these two, these mother, mother-baby mother um, inpatient or partial inpatient programs in which, um, you know, you come with your baby and idea is that it's, it's terrible to take a baby away from its mother, again, assuming this is like universally just something that nobody would want to do. Mm -hmm. And so you bring the baby with you. And a big part of the I've sat in on on a program like this in Providence, a big part of the therapy is teaching the mom how to interact with the baby in a way that's seen as healthy and to bond with the baby. And so the sort of treatment for her is really bound up with this idea of what's good for the baby, which Mm -hmm. is something else I find troubling. And as you point out, doesn't always make a lot of sense because, you know, a lot of families, even in the States, and I would venture to say in Australia, are not necessarily these traditional mother cares for baby and it's all about the mother-baby relationship, right? There are a lot -hmm. of other people involved um, and presumably we want these other people involved, right? Especially there's a lot of emphasis now on trying to get fathers or other partners involved. Mm -hmm. Um, But by framing it around, it's the mother-baby diet, you're really missing out on an opportunity, I think, to think Mm -hmm. more broadly about, about the family, as you point out.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I thought I really liked the line that you even um, italicized, which was that bonding with her baby should not be equated with healing herself. And I was like, yeah. Yes. Yeah,
1: true. <laughs> exactly. And that that's one of the things that really bothered me in, in doing these observations. And, and it was all extremely well intentioned, of course, but, mm-hmm. you know, especially some of the mothers who showed up to these mother baby programs, like, they don't want to be with their baby right now. <laughs> they want to focus on themselves and they're mm-hmm. tired of dealing with the baby. And they might have someone at home who can take care of the baby. You know, it's great to have as an option if you don't have anyone else who can care for the baby, but it's actually a requirement in a lot of these places. You have to come with your baby and, you know, that it doesn't make sense for everybody. And it it shouldn't be your own well-being should not be assumed to be wrapped up with that of your baby you should yeah. be able to focus on yourself especially during a crisis so mm-hmm.
0: did you face any challenges when you were either collecting the data for this paper or in writing up the paper
1: So, I mean, the, the data has been a very long process. Um, I, I actually became certified as a postpartum doula and I Mm -hmm. took a course in maternal mental health and, um, did a lot of different things as well as doing the interviews in two different countries. So, um, you know, a big, I would say a big challenge was getting anyone to fund or care about this. Oh, I, I had a lot of trouble getting funding for this project because, um, I don't know. I can't help but thinking it's a little bit, it's a little bit of a sexist sort of um, uh, undertone to it because people just don't, they 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 just didn't see this as being that important to study. You know, people study pregnancy and people study parenting, and why are you focusing on this one particular period? At least among um, social scientists, you know, clinically there's a lot more attention to this, um, and mm-hmm. I should say there's there are a lot of Uh, people working very hard on these issues and among, um, among clinical uh, researchers, but in the social sciences, much less so. So that Mm -hmm. was a challenge. And then the other challenge, I guess, about this particular paper is just that um, it is so fraught. And I did feel so strongly about it that it was very hard to write. It It took a lot of years, I mean, of sort of writing a little bit and coming leaving it for a while and then coming back and reading some more and then erasing it all and starting over. And that's kind of part of my process anyway, whenever I write something. Mm -hmm. Um, But this was, this took a long time. I think I started writing this about three years before it actually got published because I just started and stopped and trashed it and started over again. (laughs)
0: uh,
1: It just took a long time to get to where I felt right about it.
0: Yeah. Yeah yeah that's interesting it's it's interesting to me how sometimes those things that we are most passionate about are the most difficult things to write um in a scholarly way about
1: yeah exactly because you Mm want to get it right because you care you
0: know absolutely well um i guess we're coming towards the end of our time here so i'll just ask you a final question and that is um what kind of takeaway message do you hope that people will gain from your paper what do you want people to leave with
1: um I would say to just give moms a break yeah? <laughs> um and I, I mean this is maybe not a terribly innovative idea but you know becoming a mother shouldn't involve becoming a sacrificial lamb to your child like it you can you can be a good mother without um Making yourself miserable, and I think a lot of people, especially when they first have a baby, really don't know how to do that, and they don't get a lot of support for how to do that. Um, and the other part of that is just, you know, at the beginning of a newborn's life is when they're the most vulnerable, but it's also often when their mother is the most vulnerable. And so we need to be thinking about how to how to help two different vulnerable people here at the same time and we're not really doing a good job of that in most places.
0: Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for that.
1: Thank you, thanks for having me.
0: Oh it was great and thanks everyone for listening to this episode of FabGab. You can find Kate's paper that we've discussed linked in this episode's notes along with a transcript. FabGab is hosted by me, Catherine McKay, and produced by Madeline Goldberger. You can find our other episodes on Spotify, Radio Public, Anchor, or wherever you get your podcasts of quality. Thanks so much for listening. Bye. (laughs)